Welcome back to Streamageddon, the TV and streaming podcast where we look at the intersection of business and art and what it means for viewers like you. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by the Manti Patinkin of this podcast cruise ship, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Honored. Honored. Uh, you, you killed my father. <laughs> Prepare to die. <laughs> I apologize, but I deserve that. Thank you. And and of course, why is Mandy on the mind this week? Well, that's because we are kicking off a little winter detective show extravaganza. Because there is uh, nothing like the cold winter months to cozy up and watch a good mystery. And after uh, some very successful mysteries in the streaming universe last year, I'm thinking uh, Glass Onion on Netflix. I'm thinking Poker Face on Peacock. It seems like all the streamers have decided it's mystery season. And so we're beginning a stretch of three detective show reviews, starting this week with Hulu's Death and Other Details, starring Mandy Patinkin. We've watched the first three episodes. The season is ongoing. Next week... We're going to shift over to a little streamer called AMC Plus, where they are doing a co-production with French, uh, the French uh, network Canal Plus. You can't say plus there, it's Plus. And that happens to be a, a kind of um, period piece from a gritty old noir character we might know as Sam Spade. In this case, it's called Monsieur Spade, starring Clive Owen. Uh, We'll talk about that next week. And then, in two weeks, the grand mommy of them all, this season's big detective show extravaganza, True Detective, Night Country, starring Jodie Foster on Max and HBO. All of that coming to you. So just mm, uh, cozy up, grab some popcorn, and uh, tell us, what mysteries are you trying to solve in the streaming universe? podcast at streamageddon.com is the place to do that. But without further delay, we have to solve a few news-related mysteries of our own, beginning with a bit of follow-up. And I cannot believe we're in 2024, and I have follow-up about the writer's strike. Congratulations, Diane. The story never ends. Uh, More good news is coming. That's a positive. Hey, that's a good way to look at it, because in in what has to be the most random news drop of the past week, the Directors Guild, the DGA, has announced revisions to their contract with the AMPTP to match many of the gains that the WGA got after their months-long strike. And I just want to remind you, listener, the DGA did not strike. The DGA just signed a contract while the writers were on strike and said, we're good, thanks. But apparently, when they saw what the writers and and perhaps SAG-AFTRA got out of their prolonged strike, they said, hang on a second, transparency? Bonuses? Tell us more. And who knows what backroom shenanigans got the AMPTP to agree to reopen these negotiations, because the deal was done. The AMPTP could have said, get lost, losers. But instead... They said, come on in. We would love to give you the very specific form of transparency we gave the writers and the very specific form of bonuses we gave the writers. Why not? I, I, I think maybe it suggests the AMPTP thinks that those bonuses and transparency aren't as valuable as, as perhaps the writers hoped they would be. But maybe it's just generosity. Maybe the AMPTP set a New Year's resolution to just embrace uh, love and affection for their creative partners. That certainly could be what happened. Uh, I think my take is slightly more cynical. I think that the AMPTP knows that at least in, at least in terms of media narrative, they lost the year uh, to the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. And so I wonder if part of this is showing, hey, look, those who uh, follow the rules and don't do anything, you know, uh, obstreperous like striking might be rewarded too, uh, you know. So I, I, I do think that there might be something at play here in terms of, sure, give them these added bonuses. It makes it look like you don't have to strike or that the strike was somehow unnecessary. Yeah, that's the cynical take I was looking for. Thank you, Diane. I feel <laughs> I feel like there's a lot I of truth in that. And I would just point out, I think you're right. And also, 
I think it's uh, obvious that the DGA would be gaining none of these things if the writers and actors had not struck. And, and I would also go as far as to say, I don't think the writers would have gained these things if the actors had not struck. I, really, the success of the strike was the dual strike. Uh, and, and especially in the narrative side you talk about, when it became everyone against the AMPTP is when the narrative really started to shift. Agreed. At the same time, to me, uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. I'm pleased for the many hardworking people of the uh, Directors Guild. Uh, they, they, they do deserve these gains. This is great news. Yeah, uh, here we are, 2024, full of great news all around. There is nothing in the world of news that is ominous or upsetting or stress-inducing in the year 2024. Just, I, I, I don't know what it would be. That's why we're watching all this murder. That's correct. We need to juice. We need drama in our lives. There isn't enough. But if you are into the news and you wanted uh, some kind of program on television or streaming to help guide you through the news in a, let's say, lighthearted way, then you might be a fan of our years-long recurring segment, Daily Show Host Watch. And if you are familiar with our recurring years-long segment, it, it has been over a year since there was a host of The Daily Show, uh, well, then you probably already know the news. Our long national nightmare is possibly sort of over because The Daily Show has a permanent host. Asterisk, some exceptions may apply. Permanent host only permanent on Monday nights, only permanent through the election at the end of the year. Sure, it's a permanent host. Hey, uh, it's not just any permanent host. Oh, you don't say, Diane. Who is this permanent host, Mondays only? Uh, a fellow who fans of The Daily Show may recall, Mr. Jon Stewart. I was about to jump in and go, Craig Kilborn, Mo Rocca. No, Jon Stewart. I would, love... I would love Mo Rocca. Why didn't they get Mo Rocca a turn in the host chair? Agreed. He's, yeah, he's, he's on CBS programming. Paramount has him in their wheelhouse. I enjoy his work on NPR. Mm, I enjoy Moraka anywhere I can find him. But that's not on The Daily Show anymore. That was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe. Uh, instead, we're going to find another old familiar face on The Daily Show because, yes, Jon Stewart is returning as executive producer and Monday night host, which we in the industry call pulling a mad owl. Because if you're not familiar, Rachel Maddow, the most successful uh, name on MSNBC who hosts The Rachel Maddow Show, uh, now only hosts The Rachel Maddow Show on Monday nights because she's too busy having other things to do than a show that takes all of your time every single day of the week. But she is still the executive producer of the show, she directs and guides the show, and Jon Stewart is coming in to do basically the same thing with The Daily Show while the correspondents will sit in the host chair and rotate through Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And before we get into the Jon Stewart of it all, I, I, I want to point out, I think the big win here is the correspondence. Because as somebody who watched many, many, many different guest hosts of The Daily Show over the last 12 months, I will tell you, the big surprise, especially this fall when they came back, was how good the correspondents were. Not just the big names that we were excited for, like Roy Wood Jr., you know, respect, sir, go on in life. Uh, but the when they began to dip into the roster of Ronnie Chang, uh, Desi Lydic, uh Jordan Klepper co-hosting with different uh, correspondents, they began to play with the format and treat it sort of as an ensemble show, which in a way it always has been because it's always had the ensemble of correspondents, but they've never been the ensemble of host slash correspondents. And I, you know, I don't know if that's sustainable forever uh, John Oliver was uh, asked about this last week, and he was very excited for Jon Stewart coming back, especially in an election year. But he said that he thinks the show needs a permanent host, that The Daily Show requires one. And I, I don't know if he's right, but smart money would bet that he is. Sure, he certainly knows the show and the industry quite well. Yeah, I, um, I kind of trust his instincts there. I also think, though, that for him, as someone who is a late-night host, there is something potentially unintentionally self-serving in saying late-night hosts need to continue to exist. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we have to have one person who's the anchor of the show so that they can be paid the most. Clearly, clearly, I of course I, I I'm not uh, putting that on on John, no, who I no. think is probably a great guy. But yeah, I mean that model certainly has served them for a time, but in other ways it hasn't because uh, as we've discussed on here, uh, viewership of the Daily Show has gone down considerably enormously, in fact. And the other side of this, as we we get into the Jon Stewart of it all, is what does this mean for Comedy Central and Paramount? And, you you know, if we uh, back up for a second and look at the last, you know, uh, 12 months of Daily Show Host Watch, there was the moment where Paramount decided it was going to be Hassan Minhaj. And we now know this. It is. It was rumored, and then when everything fell apart, it became public knowledge that they decided this like six or seven months ago, but didn't want to announce anything or sign anything during the strike. And so when they came back in the fall, having axed that deal because of, as we've discussed in the past, the New Yorker article about Hassan Minaj and his comedy, and honestly, I don't care about any of that. Although I will point out the timing was probably the fatal blow there. If you look at other people who stretched their stories, um, let's say truthiness uh, in the news adjacent industry, you might remember Brian Williams, who has uh, frequently been pointed out to me as a counterexample here, because he definitely embellished stories about his life and then got to stay working at NBC News, just in a diminished capacity. So again, I don't want to get into the Hassan of it all, but it is worth pointing out that that all fell apart at a very inopportune time for everyone involved, and The Daily Show came back from the writer's strike with a kind of shambles of a strategy, which was to recycle old guest hosts and embrace the correspondence. And one of those worked out really well, I think. Embracing the correspondence was a win from that uh, kind of, let's say, panicked period of experimentation. But all of it paints a picture of a show that is in crisis. Agreed. And while I think that bringing Jon Stewart back will, at least for a time, uh, significantly juice up those viewership numbers i do think overall what's happening at comedy central is happening across cable tv and uh it's it's on its way out how fast that will be is still anyone's guess um i think for a long time as we've talked about uh news and sports were really keeping cable alive and we're finding that the streaming industry is finding ways every moment to uh, incorporate news and sports onto these platforms. Have they perfected either yet? No. But I think when those happen, uh, the, the cable bundles will be essentially dead. Yeah, we're marching in that direction. And there's the added element of Comedy Central, part of the MTV Media Group, which is, of course, part of Paramount. So you can stream The Daily Show on Paramount Plus as long as Paramount Plus still exists. Or maybe Paramount Plus will keep existing, but Paramount will sell their cable assets because they are declining in value and ultimately dragging down the entire business. Will The Daily Show even be under the Paramount umbrella in 2025 when Jon Stewart is still executive producing? He will step away from the host chair, he says in 2025, but they, they announced him as an executive producer to carry through the next generation. But where will that be? Will it even be on Comedy Central? They they certainly own it. But what is Comedy Central? Where will I get Comedy Central if I don't have a cable bundle in 2025? It's a great question. I think that there is a high likelihood that The Daily Show, with this new and new, I guess not new, <laughs> but with this uh, returning infusion of energy, could last longer than Paramount. As <laughs> God, I hope so. I would like yeah. it to. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, to your point, uh, there is an article in Business Insider from Peter Kafka, who is a well, uh, well-sourced person in the media industry. Uh, the headline is, holy crap, look how small and old The Daily Show's audience has gotten. And Diane, you sent this to me uh, right before we started recording, and my jaw mm. dropped at some of these numbers. 
Yeah, it's it's rough going. This line particularly jumped out to me, and I'm quoting here. When Stewart left, the median age of his audience was 48.2 years old. Now it's 63.3. That is wild. That is wild, especially when you consider, I think in some ways, choosing Trevor Noah was a play to bring in younger audiences. Yeah, but a key there... He's very talented. He is. I'm, I'm not... Yeah. But the key there is, like, my sister loved Trevor Noah, loves Trevor Noah, but I don't think she ever watched an episode on Comedy Central, linearly, of The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. She would send me a YouTube clip of Trevor Noah, or she would say, did you see this on YouTube? She, the, the, that younger generation is still consuming this kind of content, but they absolutely are not watching it on cable TV. No. And I think what's interesting about that is some of the best Trevor Noah content from The Daily Show is stuff that never aired on cable TV. It's clips of him addressing the audience uh, in like expanded sections um, after the, sh the the cameras were obviously still running, but it's the part that's not aired. So, I, I yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I can admit that I've seen a lot of The Daily Show in the past few years on TikTok. And uh, it's yeah. not a bad way to watch it. No, and they obviously actively engage there. They produce that content mm -hmm. for TikTok. It's not an accident. Uh, so, right. you know, you have to uh, understand that these numbers might look doom and gloom for The Daily Show, but they're really doom and gloom for cable. And The Daily right. Show has to figure out how to navigate the death of cable. The other number here that just really puts this into, uh, you know, stark relief is the overall viewership numbers. When uh, Jon Stewart left, they were at 2.2 million viewers a night. They're currently at 570,000. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's less than a third of what it was. That's terrible. It's huge. Uh, that makes me sad because I, I love The Daily Show. Me too. And but I don't watch it on on cable when I've been watching it for Daily Show host watch. I've been watching mm -hmm. on Paramount Plus next day. Right, right. No, no, it doesn't make me want to watch cable. No, it doesn't. And to be clear, these numbers are just cable, just cable. We're not even factoring in Paramount Plus here, let alone TikTok and YouTube, which are harder to measure and combine the, the impact of, let alone how does this make financial sense for Paramount? That That's all all fun things they have to figure out. Right. I think that really this is the story of cable television and yes. and what it what it is in 2024. But this move really could prolong its life. Yeah, I mean, it, it does have uh, I'm going to use an aggressive word here. It has a stench of desperation. But at a time when I think if you're desperate, you go for it. You know, like, I, I'm not knocking them for that. I'm saying, yeah, maybe you're sitting there going, oh, no, if we don't try something really big, if we don't ask someone to come save us, we're doomed. And, and you know, we don't know who approached who first. Uh, I, we can't get into this, but uh, Jon Stewart recently on the market, recently out of a job. And so was he... The fishing for this? Has he been watching the shenanigans at Paramount going, man, I'd love to get back in there and just help write the ship? Or at Paramount, did they see him free up and go, oh my god, a savior. Will you take our calls? Yeah, I mean, I do think he was probably primed for the request if he didn't initiate the conversation. We don't know that. And maybe more will come out in the coming weeks. We'll see. I have to say the phrase you use, stench of desperation, as a viewer, as a Daily Show fan, I feel that not about the state of the cable industry necessarily, but out about the topics that the show covers. I think that going into 2024, having Jon Stewart back, um, maybe it's the uh, desperation wafting off me, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, actually, that's really well said. One of the Sounds challenges. Like yeah, one of the challenges with the guest hosts is that some of them just their areas of interest or expertise were way far afield from the core Daily Show, uh, you know, coverage. Uh, what what we would expect a John Stewart or Trevor Noah to focus on, and so sometimes you'd get a really interesting deep dive into like AI copyright from Sarah Silverman, who's very up on the news and very plugged into kind of uh, very current topics. But then sometimes you'd have a Chelsea Handler hosting, who I love, but that is not her wheelhouse. Her wheelhouse is like celebrity gossip. And those episodes felt like a completely different show sometimes. And sometimes that was interesting.
interesting. Sometimes it was deadly. And I, I in particular, there's a Chelsea Handler uh, tried a kind of panel bit uh, uh, with celebrity gossip on one of her episodes. And again, respect for trying something new. They, they have to try new things if they want to keep the show alive. But man, that was one of the worst like five minutes of The Daily Show I've ever seen because it just didn't belong. Right. And maybe someone else should give Chelsea Handler that show and they can market it as that show, probably on a streamer, let's be honest. But you know what I mean? Like, this is not what that is. And so it's not finding the right audience. The 63.3 year old average viewer of The Daily Show (laughs) might not be interested. Yeah, might not. I'm trying to picture my parents watching that episode and trying to understand who anyone was or what any of them were talking about. Uh, but you, that, that is, you know, that's the dichotomy there. How do they keep the the small but still somewhat profitable cable viewership alive? They sell ads on it. It's not nothing. But that can't be their target, their focus. They have to maintain that while finding a way to move ahead because those people are not going to be there forever. They're not, no. Uh, but... Uh, That is exciting. All of it is uh, exciting. And Jon Stewart will be hosting The Daily Show next month in February. It is here. It is coming. And then we get to see, I I think, I'm hoping, a really energetic and revitalized uh, group of correspondents hosting the rest of the week. Because, again, the more that they did that in the fall, the better they got at it. And the more it felt like, you know, maybe you just need an ensemble that has the same voice. And the problem with the guest hosts was each guest host had a different voice, and some of them jived with the ensemble, and some of them not so much. Well, I'm curious to see how Jon Stewart jives with this, you know, younger, more diverse ensemble, too. I mean, we'll see how it works. You know, obviously, he's got years and years of experience behind the desk, but The Daily Show has changed a lot. I, I think it'll still work. I think this is the right bet. Yeah, if if there's any bet they were going to make, I do think, uh, given the situation and where they found themselves, this was the bet to to make. And again, even if it feels like a a Hail Mary, sometimes you got to throw a Hail Mary. And this is a good-looking Hail Mary. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That is such a big, big news this week. It is the thing I have been thinking about all week. But it is not the only news in the streaming universe we have to get to, because there is another little streamer that had some big news this week. And wouldn't you know it, it's going to tie into the death of the cable industry, because Netflix, Netflix had such a big week, such a good week, and at the same time, I look at Netflix now, and uh, I go, huh, what is Netflix anymore? And an answer might be in this headline from TheVerge.com, Netflix is turning in to cable TV. Diane, what are some of the reasons we think Netflix is turning into cable TV? Well, it's uh, completely dominant and also dominated by ads more and more. Ads and reruns. Ads and reruns. That's cable TV, baby. I, I love it. I kind of do, too. I'm like, hey, listen, that that is what I grew up on is, you know, you put on TBS and there's like four straight episodes of Seinfeld and a ton of ads, just like 20 minutes of Seinfeld. They trim it down so tight and they fill it with ads. That That was the cable TV formula. And Netflix is leaning hard into that with a few very notable changes. Uh, These are coming off the heels of a really good earnings report. They are up 13 million subscribers. Their stock is way up this week on some very good news for investors. Uh, But the bigger story to me is they announced a huge deal with WWE, which has been hanging out with Peacock. Uh, which has been good for Peacock, but I, I, mm-hmm. I, I gather from people I know who are into WWE that they don't love Peacock, and they're very happy to hear that uh, it's moving to Netflix, a service they prefer or already pay for, so why not? I think for so many people, they've gotten used to paying for Netflix for so long that they feel like things coming to Netflix means that they're free. Yes. Whereas if you tell them, oh, there's a new thing you need to watch on Paramount Plus or AMC Plus, they may say, oh, I don't want to pay for another thing, as if they're not paying for Netflix. Right. 
And and, uh, truly, in the case of WWE, that was what many people felt. It moved from cable to, well, they had their own streaming thing as well, but it moved to Peacock. And they all felt, now I have to pay for Peacock? Whereas most of them, if you're paying for Peacock, you're probably already paying for Netflix. That is the, the assumption here that I think holds true for a lot of people. And so Netflix has signed a 10-year deal to carry Monday Night Raw. So this is, a, a, it's a pseudo-sports thing. It's a pseudo-cable thing. It, it is touching on a bunch of areas that are where streaming is going to eat the cable bundle's lunch in the very near future. Uh, and it's, it's not cheap. It's a $5 billion deal. And Netflix does have an option to walk away after five years if it's not working out. But th- even that is committing to five years of this. That is that is saying we're in it. I will say that number sounds high um, when you think about a sports deal. But it's interesting to note that one thing about the WWE is it's uh, 50 weeks a year. It's not like, you know, the NFL or the NBA, which are seasonal. Not that you can't have NFL content in the offseason, but really this is a totally different thing. And also, um, I think the WWE tends to go in waves of better content, more popularity and sort of off years. And it has been on a peak of late. So I think that it it's really just in a period of growth. Um, and this is a a big win for Netflix as well to get it at that price point. Yeah, and and it basically being a year-round sport is like just the best thing you could say to whoever is in charge of reducing churn. You say Mm -hmm. there's a sport that never has an off month that they'll never be able to cancel because what you see with the football deals and Peacock having their uh, NFL playoff game, that was a success for Peacock. Paramount has some football. Amazon has some football. And, and football, as we've said before, is the most popular television show in America. But football is at best half of the year, and, and not even all of that's the good games. So when you look at it like that, I know many people who got Peacock for that one game and then immediately canceled. Or they, they've got one month of Paramount Plus to get through the, the playoffs, and then they're going to drop Paramount Plus. And, and the hope, of course, with these deals for Paramount and Peacock is, well, they'll pay for it, and then they'll see that there's something else they want to watch, and then they'll renew it. Or they'll forget to cancel it, and then they'll be like, well, I have it. I'll check out Poker Face. Oh, that's kind of cool. I guess I'll have Peacock now. But the reality is that sports viewers are very motivated to watch their sport and nothing else. Well, as much as that is a, a win for Netflix, right? You could reduce churn. For the WWE, they might be looking at the stats the same way and say, hey, compared to other streamers, Netflix viewers have less churn. They're holding on to the viewers. So more people are likely to keep watching WWE week to week and not be seasonal viewers like you have with Paramount Plus or Peacock. This is actually takes me exactly to my next uh, point in this is Netflix just cable now question. Suits. Suits is the most cable thing on the planet. Literally, USA Network's, like, just formula distilled to a a fine, just, reduction. A balsamic reduction of USA Network is what Suits is. And Suits has been on Peacock for years, where it floundered, where no one watched it. And then, you know, Comcast, NBC Universal said, you know what, Netflix, you want to give us some money for some old USA shows? Please, we will take your money. And Suits blows up on Netflix. Why? Because people have Netflix. Because people channel surf through the Netflix home screen as a default, the way that you would in the 90s and the early 2000s, channel surf through the cable guide. Absolutely. It does feel like cable. And while you're saying, you know, uh, Suits is a great example of what USA programming is. So is the WWE. Yeah. So I think, I mean, and continues to be the WWE. So I think the USA Network is a perfect comparison. The USA Network of maybe 15, 20 years ago is sort of what Netflix is now. We know that at one point they were really um, eager for prestige awards like Oscars. They were making big plays to sort of step in and be an HBO type network. And I think this moved toward more mid-tier programming. While part of it disappoints me because I love premium television, uh, in terms of mass popularity, it makes complete sense. 
Yeah, and just look at the direction Netflix's original slate has gone in the last few years. They are no longer trying to make uh, prestige hits like, you know, to go way back, House of Cards, designed to be an HBO-style prestige hit. That was the initial impetus with their streaming uh, ambitions for their originals. They now primarily focus on can we produce reality shows? Can we, you know, take a, a foreign show and redo it in another language? Can we make a foreign show a hit in another country? They, they are Their priorities have shifted so much more to focus on the size and scale of their operation and less the individual. They, they no longer treat the individual shows like little jewels that they show off in a, in a beautiful little uh, box for you. No, they're like, here, we got a bunch of stuff. Here, take a, you know, come up to the trough of shows and dip your hands in, grab some, see what you like. Uh, and, and again, for their business and their market, that makes a lot of sense. The, the WWE deal is global. Is global. That's huge. Peacock couldn't do that. No, no, they couldn't. Uh, no, this is massive. And I think, you know, we also have to look at Netflix is making forays into gaming, into children's entertainment. Uh, I think that it's really going to become more and more of an um, everywhere stop for where you watch content of any kind. I think right now Netflix is not necessarily in competition with these other streamers. Um, they used to say, what I think Sarandos used to say, Netflix's biggest competitor is sleep. And I think right now it's just TikTok. Yeah, right. Uh, yes. Like TikTok, YouTube, uh, short form entertainment is going to be their their real threat more so than you know, uh, broadcast or cable television or even you know, Peacock and Max. I yeah. think other streamers are competing to be the second, third, and fourth place. It, it's a hundred percent true. Uh, and I think Netflix looks at their other main competition as video games because they take up mm -hmm. the screen. And that's why they're getting into video games. It, it, it could not be more obvious. Uh, but, but there is one more important detail out of this Netflix news this week that I think really drives home the new cable bundle of Netflix. And that is the end, the death of our beloved uh, basic no ads plan. I believe they just called it basic. Uh, this is maybe the most classic Netflix plan for many people. This is the plan where you had uh, no ads. That's it. I mean, it boggles my mind to say, like, they got rid of the no ad plan that everybody had. And now your choices are the ad tier for $6.99 a month, or you have to go up to a more expensive uh, $15.49 a month plan. Their prices are getting hard. So hard to memorize now. Uh, to, to be clear, what we have... There is the $6.99 Basic with Ads plan, and then gone is the $11.99 Basic tier. So if you were on that tier, you will need to move to either the $6.99 Basic with Ads plan or up to the $15.49 plan, or you could go all the way up to $22.99 for the 4K full-blown Big Daddy Netflix tier. In some ways, this is a necessary simplification. There were too many ad-free tiers before. I cannot, at a, off the top of my head, tell you the difference between the $11.99 plan and the $15.49 plan, except that the $15.49 plan got you more simultaneous screens. And that might be the only difference between those two plans. So now, we have a much cleaner three-tier Netflix. There's the cheap Netflix, which is the cable bundle. It's $6.99 a month for the cable bundle. That's a good price for a cable bundle. Hope you like to watch some ads. I've seen some of the Netflix ads because I am on that plan now, and they're fine. They are awkwardly inserted in shows, but they are otherwise fine. But if you don't want ads, well, now it's going to cost you more than double to get to the ad-free tier. This pricing structure really says to me they are not asking people to have Netflix as part of a streaming package or as one of their streamers they are saying let us we know that we are the primary yeah it, it is life. saying yeah. we we are the default and we think at any given time you will at least pay 6.99 a month uh, and if you are a diehard we will take every penny we can from you to remove those ads if you love 4k content well you need to pay 22.99 for 4k content you just have to 
Scott Stuber, who was the head of Netflix film, um, their movie division also left this week. He is, you know, I think that shows another move toward this sort of cable programming. Um, it's less about making original moves. So um, he was a big proponent of getting Netflix movies into theatrical. So uh, it'll be interesting what happens there, too. Will they even now pretend to to have interest in putting movies in theaters. Yeah, that's that's a big open question that we will keep an eye on. But this is a show about streaming, and we don't often go to the theaters. So we will move on now to our review of the week. It is time to solve a little mystery on the high seas, because we're about to talk about Hulu's death and other details. So Death and Other Details, a show with a title I don't love because I find it uh, wordy, but, and a little cutesy, and eh, but it is an interesting idea for a show. It is sort of an old school Agatha Christie style mystery, uh, serialized over the course of a season. I, I think of it as uh, Murder, He Wrote, because the main character is a world-renowned detective slash writer named Rufus Coatsworth played by none other than Mandy Patinkin, who is sort of the uh, Angela Lansbury of our time. I'm going to just put that out there. Oh, I love that. I love Angela Lansbury. What a talent. They both, uh, you know, significant Sondheim credits. But uh, <laughs> I think um, as much as this is very, Angel or very Agatha Christie-inspired, for me, it very much feels like a Ryan Johnson ripoff. Very much. I am glad you went straight there. This is uh, Glass Onion, the series. And my takeaway so far, not to just get way ahead, we watched three episodes. We will be spoiling just the first three episodes as we discuss this. Uh, the season goes through March 5th. There will be 10 episodes total, so we are not spoiling much beyond the premise. Uh, but my takeaway three episodes in is... Oh my god, Glass Onion would be insufferable if it was 10 episodes long. The reason Glass Onion works is because it's a two-hour movie and then it's over. Short and sweet. I do agree with that mostly. Um, I think that I already found Glass Onion at times a little insufferable. Um, but I did have a moment at the end of the third episode, which I watched with my husband, where he turned to me and he was like, Wait, there's 10 of these? Yeah. <laughs> That again is my like, ten? there's too many things going on. And then, and I know why it's because there's too many episodes. So they think they need a lot of balls in the air. But at a certain point, I know what the main mystery is, but they just keep throwing other random, tiny little character mysteries at me. And, and I don't have a ton of investment in any of them right now. I think that that is by design. I think that there is a move, and you've heard about this from TV creators, that um, TV needs to be a second screen entertainment. And so uh, it's some, it's a show, it's a mystery, it's got twists and turns. But if you tune out and you're looking at your phone for 15 minutes, you won't be totally lost because a lot of what happens doesn't matter. Is that an asset or is that a detriment? I guess your mileage may vary, but I don't think that it's accidental. I, that's a really interesting point. I love second screen television, but I usually want my second screen television to be extremely formulaic. And usually I want it to be uh, you know, a show that is episodic, not serialized. You know, the, mm -hmm. the classic example for me would be Law & Order. Good Law & Order, not current Law & Order. Uh, but, but Law & Order is the most formulaic show on the planet on purpose. They know you're folding laundry while you do it, or like, you know, running downstairs to put more money in the, the washing machine. And so they repeat plot points over and over again. They beat what's going on into your head so that if you were not in the room or you were looking at your phone when they said why this person's a suspect, don't worry, the next scene when they're interrogating him, they're going to tell you again why he's a suspect. This show, it feels like they're dragging that out in a way that is less pleasant as a second screen experience. I think that's really well observed, and I, I, I don't disagree with you at all. 
But, you know, you you might love this mystery. I don't want to just jump into the review saying, man, what a lame show. That's not 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 the whole story. No, I, 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 I will say I kind of like it. It seems to me kind of like those cozy mysteries that you read sometimes. Um, I I think it's kind of enjoyable. Like even the bloody stuff isn't too gruesome. So it feels very watchable, even if yeah. not compelling. Yeah, for example, if I was like visiting my family, this would be something we could watch as a, a an all-family mystery show together. It, it's interesting enough, but it's not too uh, gruesome for anyone or too dark or complicated for anyone. It does have some nudity and sexual content. Um, a l- nothing a bit. again, nothing again too explicit. But you know, there there has been nudity. I think on two out of three episodes so far, um, which to me makes it kind of feel like were they planning this for HBO or something and then pivoted to Hulu? I don't know, but um, it doesn't seem to totally fit in with the rest of the tone. Yeah, those moments do kind of uh, stick out a little bit. But the the tone is interesting. It is definitely Glass Onion inspired. The other uh, inspiration for the tone, I feel, is White Lotus. Rich people in a fabulous place on a fabulous vacation, but with lots of darkness and perhaps a murder, uh, or in this case, definitely a murder. Uh, And also, you know, uh, interpersonal shenanigans from people who none of whom you really think are doing the right thing for the right reasons. All of the rich characters on this show have some kind of uh, secret or gambit or dark thing they're hiding. And the only characters on this show who seemingly are who they appear to be on the surface are our two leads, Mandy Patinkin as Rufus Coatsworth and Violet Bean as Imogen Scott, the other uh, lead of the show. She is a young woman who we learn extremely quickly in the pilot, and I almost think you could have saved some of this backstory for later, but they set up right away in the pilot that when Imogen was a child, her mother died in a a tragic murder that we see as a car bombing. Uh, And that almost took Imogen's life, too. Imogen was in the car, but she had to go back out to get something, and when her mother turned the key, the car exploded. Classic kind of mob-hit-looking scene. Uh, And Imogen's the only person who might have witnessed anything, And she's taking it hard as a child. So they bring in world-renowned detective Rufus Coatsworth, who we get to see uh, in flashbacks, talking with and trying to connect with young Imogen. And what we learn is that he failed to solve that case. And she has been bitter and uh, hated him ever since. And he, in fact, went from being the world-renowned successful detective Rufus Coatsworth to being the washed-up former world-renowned detective hired to do some kind of bodyguard work on this rich cruise ship. Or that's what it seems, because the longer we spend with these characters, the more it seems like what they're gearing us up for is Rufus has always been trying to solve the murder of Imogen's mother and is here not by accident or coincidence, but because he needs to bring Imogen in to finally solve the case. Yeah, that's a fun setup. I do think the comparison that you made to the White Lotus is really interesting because you're right about the setup. And I think that it does have some satirical ambitions like the White Lotus, but it is a show entirely without subtext. Uh, (laughs) When they want to talk about like rich people being awful, they show, you know, they show you a rich person, rich man. Right. Shouting at a waitress. You know, it's it's not um, it's not subtle. It's it, it, it lacks the, the wit, I think, that makes White Lotus so piercing. Um, so I, I didn't make that connection, though. I do see what you mean in terms of its setting. And also there are many beautiful people. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, much like the White Lotus. It feels kind of like the um, uh, CBS procedural version of White Lotus, where like everyone uh, looks like they've come out of central casting in a great way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really well said. Actually, every everyone I, looks like they could hook up together, even the characters who uh, you actually don't want to see do that. Yeah, the the ensemble's good. 
Yeah, the actors. They're pretty good. Yeah, it's a great cast. Even some of the, the funnier characters they bring in. Uh, we have uh, Jack Cutmore Scott, no, known to many people as Frasier's son, Freddy, in the Frasier 2023 <laughs> reboot. Uh, he, he plays this rich brother in the family who is a total screw up, but also trying to close an important business deal and trying to get the respect of his, you know, rich, very successful businessman father, who also seems to have a lot of shady things going on and also maybe was involved in the murder of Imogen's mother. We're getting some hints in that direction. But that could also be a ton of misdirection. It is early in the season, and the show is interested in throwing some twists our way. It is. It is. I think that each episode will give us at least two or three big twists. Now, whether those are at all consequential, I think will be uh, another story. I think that this um, sort of uh, Agatha Christie mode usually involves by design many many red herrings yeah yeah absolutely i i am scrolling through the the cast right now and just like tickled by some of the smaller roles like uh linda emmond who you might know from um uh the patient she, you might know her from she's some, so good she's so good there are just these small actors who you might look at and go i don't know their name but i love them and they are kind of sprinkled throughout this show and they're all doing a great job the production design is also doing a great job of creating this kind of opulent world there is this conceit that the uh, cruise ship they're on is designed by this man who wanted it to be authentically from like the early 20th century. And so all the furniture and all the fixtures and all the cutlery and glassware has to be from that period, not just a recreation, but of the era. And of course, it's all fake because it's TV, but they did a really good job faking it. The vibe, the Art Deco vibe of this cruise ship is spectacular. I agree, but for me, this is, I find this a little grating because so many of the actors have iPhone face. Like, I just don't <laughs> believe that they fit in this world. Like, um, Violet Bean as Imogen is doing a really good job. I, I, she's really grown on me as this character. I think, um, she has some good comedic timing. Um, but I, her, she's got this like awful sort of, flapper haircut that is really distracting and ridiculous looking even though she's wearing all these great clothes which seem entirely impractical for solving mysteries she's like stealthily going down these shady hallways in a crisp white pants suit and i'm like well this is a bad choice uh <laughs> um Layla, who's played by Party Sereni, I think is has looked better than anyone has ever looked on film. She looks incredible. She has all these gorgeous dresses on. Um, but it, at the same time, then they start talking, and I don't know that they're totally pulling off the sort of stylized dialogue. It's it's a weird vibe for me. Yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. I think the production design is beautiful, but it doesn't always mm -hmm. jive with the mystery or the show. And it, I, I bump up against it sometimes. The owner of the boat is a character, and he is a great actor, interesting role. I don't really understand the character at all. Like, where did he get the money for this opulent cruise ship? Uh, how is this a, a, a is he wealthy and this is a lark for him and is there something else going on with him they, they again sort of hint that there is or is he desperate to make this work all of his money's riding on it he doesn't want to dock in a port uh, to solve the murder that happens on the boat which honestly we haven't even gotten to but yes there's an inciting incident in that a murder happens on the boat it's interesting and important in that the prime suspect is Imogen. She's the only person who was seen going in or out of that person's cabin that night. But we also know she didn't do it. And so a lot of the, the mystery of the show is, can she prove her innocence before it's too late? Which is a good setup. But then you add in, okay, if the murder really happened on the boat, most boats would just go dock and the police would investigate. He doesn't want to, so then Interpol comes to them, and you don't quite understand what that means. There's just a lot of question marks around the the setting they've created that I don't understand and don't seem to play along with some of the dialogue or performances. And, and some of that might be a failure of direction. Some of that might just be, well, the concept was a little uh, heady and not everyone interpreted it the same way I i'm not quite sure and and it's early in the season to say 
Yeah, I think that some of it too, they're hoping people might just overlook because uh, it's fun. You know, like it, it takes a little bit of, okay, I, what, who's named Imogen? What American is named Imogen? Anyways, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. you just kind of go, huh, this is a little confounding, but sure, let's go with it. I mean, that's the Glass Onion formula right there. You just, you, you nailed it. There are p- parts of Glass Onion that are absurd and confounding. And and the, the difference is Glass Onion, for the most part, is a lot of fun. It's a big romp and it pulls it off. And that's not easy. I, I You know, Ryan Johnson, a, a very expert uh, executor of his craft. Not everyone can execute at that level. If If you could, you'd be Ryan Johnson. I agree with that. I do think that this show, as the episodes continue, is getting more successful at it. A lot of those things that caught my attention were in the pilot. And I think episode three was a big step forward from the first two. So I'm looking forward to see where this is going. I mean, I'm not on the edge of my seat, but I don't think it's really designed that way. It's not like a um, completely engrossing, gripping mystery. It's more like a bit of fun mystery, which is kind of not a bad idea for January. Actually, I'm really glad you put it that way. Uh, Coming into recording today, I got to say I was 50-50 if I'd keep going through the season, Mm. but you just made the right argument for it. The third episode is the best of the first three. It introduces the uh, hilariously, uh, you know, Northern European Interpol investigator who is very no-nonsense. No one's accents make any sense, and they're all a lot of fun. Exactly, exactly. And that's Linda Emmond in this case. And she gets all of these delicious scenes with Mandy Patinkin, who she's both working with, but also she thinks he's kind of a a total has-been scab goofball. And he is trying to deflect her investigation away from Imogen. So there's a bit of farce and hijinks in them together. And that is where the show started to work better. I think you're 100% right about that. And so, yeah, I'm going to keep going. Because I I do want to see, you know, there's a lot of setup they had to get out of the way. And maybe that drags down and kind of muddles the tone of the first two episodes. That's fair. I I think if I had my my way with this, the revelation of Imogen and Rufus's backstory, I think that could have been saved for episode three or four and not stacked in the pilot. Because it gave us a lot of melodrama in the pilot, and the show is not really a melodrama. Ooh, that's such a good point, and I completely agree. I also am going to make an argument that I hardly ever make. But I don't think this show should release multiple episodes at once. The first drop was two episodes, and now it's going week to week, one at a time. It's a one-hour engagement. Yes, one, one a week is too great much. For this. Mm-hmm. There's too much going on to binge. I I don't think it's a good binge. I love binging. This is not <laughs> a binge. Actually, going week to week makes much more sense here. I think that's a really good point. And I know what a big deal it is for you to make that point, Diane. <laughs> it took a lot. Thanks. Well, we will keep watching it. If we think it gets really interesting, we will come back with a little bonus uh, follow-up when the season uh, wraps up in March You have plenty of time to get involved with death and other details streaming on Hulu. Uh, That means I believe, I did not do my research on this, I believe if you have both Disney Plus and Hulu, you can now watch this in the Hulu Hub on the Disney Plus app. So many ways to watch Mandy Patinkin. What a treat. Truly. And if you watch and have uh, some thoughts for us, email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. But that that is all the mystery we have time for this week, because we have to get back on the case and investigate Monsieur Spade on AMC Plus. That's coming to you next week. In the meantime, say it with me, Diane. It's time to keep Keep streaming. streaming. Ads and reruns. Ads and reruns. That's cable TV, baby.